This virtual conversation between Helena Cobbin and Richard Falk was pre-recorded for the Friends of Mount Diablo Peace and Justice Center for screening on May 20th, 2022. For more information or to download Just World Educational's report, Ukraine, Stop the Carnage, Build the Peace, please visit www.justworldeducational.org. Richard, we've heard, you know, some very likely veiled threats from President Putin about, you know, the the fact that if if the West crosses certain red lines, then he has extraordinary capabilities that we all know about. Um, does this bring to your mind um, a similarity with the Cuban Missile Crisis? Uh, yes, it's a similarity, uh, though it's uh, 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 veiled in greater ambiguity because it's hard to uh, assess whether uh, Putin is basically bluffing or is uh, uh, really feels that if these red lines are crossed, he uh, will, t- will exercise uh, the nuclear option because uh, from his perspective, uh, Russian security has been put in jeopardy or his leadership has been profoundly challenged. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was that element of uh, who would give way and and uh, uh, the problem of not backing down in the face of uh, a perceived threat. But there were the 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 issues were very concrete and tangible, and and. Uh, it was it was clearly not just a bluff on the uh, Russian uh, Soviet side, and on the American side, somewhat similarly to uh, the Russian reaction with respect to NATO and Ukraine, uh, this was seen as a uh, unacceptable intrusion in our sphere of influence and uh, we had respected the Soviet sphere of influence in Eastern Europe otherwise World War III would have started likely if we had tried to protect the Hungarian uprising in 1956 or the East German uh, developments uh, in 58 and later the Czech Spring and so on. Uh, so that it's it was very important in of in at least taking steps to avoid the uh, nuclear dangers in the Cold War period that both the Soviet Union and the U.S respected traditional spheres of influence. Now, Blinken, the Secretary of State, uh, has made very foolish uh, comments that 
suggests to me a level of surprising ignorance when he says, he's been quoted as saying, well, uh, spheres of influence are a bad idea and they should have been abandoned after World War II. Uh, if they were abandoned, uh, we probably wouldn't be here speaking because uh, it's very likely that the um, fragile East-West peace would have been shattered by the <clears throat> in the course of these kind of crises without this mutual recognition of spheres of influence. So we have a different situation now. Right. I mean, the U.S. obviously has a traditional sphere of influence in, in the whole of the Americas under the Monroe Doctrine. And it looks as though, you know, under the unipolar situation that existed from 1991 until last year, um, it looked as though successive American presidents were pushing the Monroe Doctrine, you know, worldwide, making it a yeah, global thing. A global. Even <laughs> though uh, explicitly, as you know, Monroe Doctrine was uh, repudiated by American leaders and supposedly replaced by a good neighbor policy. <laughs> right. Um, but that dissipated quickly after the Cuban Revolution, and, uh, in which uh, I remember hearing uh, Arthur Schlesinger uh, speak at Princeton saying uh, that uh, uh, Marxism, a Marxist regime was incompatible with the values of the hemisphere <laughs> and, and therefore couldn't be tolerated. And today with the attitude toward Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba, uh, we still de facto practice Monroe Doctrine diplomacy. And as you say, after the end of the Cold War, we assumed a kind of prerogative to uh, be the guarantor of global security, a Monroe Doctrine for the world. And what's happened has been that China and now Russia are challenging unipolarity and on behalf of a multipolar kind of world order, which is supported largely by the people of the South. Uh, they prefer that kind of uh, equilibrium to a unipolar dependency on the U.S. to run the world. Yeah. So um, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think that, you know, they grew up. I was still very young at the time, but they grew up like. They're an, still very young. It's <laughs> all relative. It is all relative. That's true. It, there was a, a much more lively understanding that in order to forestall these kind of crises in the future, you need to have, you know, much better communications between the two leaderships. And in fact, you need to find ways to manage the nuclear arms race. And therefore, in the decades after the Cuban Missile Crisis, you had, you know, this whole structure of arms control agreements 
and and of course the hotline between Washington and Moscow. But then with the with the collapse of the Cold War, which was very, I have to say, very elegantly um, managed by pres- the first President Bush and Secretary of State Baker in order to allow, I mean, the, the Soviet Union was collapsing, Warsaw Pact collapsed, but um, they didn't seek to rub the noses of the Soviet slash Russian leadership in their defeat. Um, and, and the fact that you could have such a, an intense and lively nuclear confrontation um, defused over the course of a couple of years without a crisis was a real um, triumph of diplomacy. But, but since then, I think Americans and people in the other NATO countries have become very lazy and disdainful of that whole concept of, of um, arms control and um, ramping down the nuclear um, arsenals and maintaining good, solid, clear communication with Moscow. Um, so a lot of that, that arms control structure was dismantled and, and the hotline was, was turned off. I mean, you know, we're, we're in a, a worse situation now than the world was in, in the late 80s, for example. Is that it's, right? Uh, I, th- I think uh, it's uh, largely right, although I would uh, dissent a little bit from your uh, uh, endorsement of the way the Cold War was ended. Uh, it's true that there wasn't a triumphalism expressed in terms of uh, humiliating the Soviet Union further. But instead of trying to get rid of these nuclear weapons at that point, there was an opportunity that was was. You could have had a much stronger UN, possibly eliminated the veto, and, uh, and, and moved toward a serious phased uh, nuclear disarmament. That was a lost opportunity. Instead, the geopolitics of victory led the U.S. to see the opportunities of unipolarity. No longer had to worry about uh, what Moscow thought. And it was accustomed to uh, uh, by the the constraints of a bipolar world, and it felt liberated by the collapse of the Soviet Union, and, and no geopolitical challenger in sight, and so it proceeded to establish and uh, maintain all these hundreds of bases, foreign military bases all over the world. And to push so, NATO further to the east. I mean, all of that Europe happened against, under... Against the uh, advice of the most knowledgeable uh, Soviet experts like George Kennan and uh, uh, Jack Matlock, the former ambassador <laughs> to Moscow. And uh, this is quickly dismissed uh, recently by... Uh, 
people who uh, focus on this uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine, but they do forget that these warnings were very solemnly made uh, by the most informed uh, American experts on uh, the Russian security sensibility. And uh, I think, uh, I think uh, the, it's not clear in retrospect that, that the U.S. and the West really won the Cold War because we've, instead of uh, taking the opportunities to create a safer, more humane world, uh, we created the conditions for a much more fragile uh, world order. We suffered from what I would call geopolitical hubris and thought that uh, we could, uh, we self-anointed uh, uh, leader of uh, security everywhere and the only legitimate form of government and a lot of uh, delusionary ideas that uh, were, is, and it was true for, for the D Democratic Party leadership as well as the Republican. I mean, when Clinton's uh, doctrine of enlargement with respect to democracies uh, uh, to, was based on the idea that if more countries could become like us, uh, then there would be peace in the world. And what happened instead was this uh, revolt against democracy. Uh, and, and we now have a uh, sort of frightening trend toward populist uh, autocracy or autocratic leaders uh, selected by popular will, including almost having it happen here uh, in the U.S. Well, we and, did for four years. <laughs> yeah, for four years. But it was, you could make the excuse it wasn't clearly enough uh, understood. Uh, and at the end of the four years, uh, Trump was narrowly uh, defeated. But it's, uh, according to current polls, if the election was held today, he would defeat uh, Biden by a considerable margin. So um, coming back to um, what we did at Just World Educational um, in March, which resulted in the, um, this little publication. Oh, you mean this one? Yes. Um, that you and I ran, you know, this, uh, this series of webinars that I think was really worth doing. But it, it still occurs to me that there's a lot of people in the younger generation who are not aware. I mean, we, in our webinar series, we did quite rightly end up with a, a wonderful session on the nuclear risks. But um, most people in the younger generation haven't had to deal with this, haven't had to deal with it either intellectually or emotionally. 
I mean, there is definitely an emotional um, component to having to think about what Herman Kahn called the unthinkable, which is nuclear annihilation and annihilation, not just of all human life on earth, but of just about all life on earth. I mean, that is hard to think about, but if you want to really come to grips with it, you need to understand a lot about the nuclear balance, how we got where we are, you know, how the world got transformed from the, the US having two tiny nuclear bombs that they used in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in order to bring an end to World War II, how we got from that situation to one in which there are nine recognized nuclear weapon states, many of them in, in highly um, con contentious places like India and Pakistan or Israel, North Korea. But at the core of it, you still have the world's two largest nuclear arsenals are um, ours and the Russians. And so we're back in a situation that, that anybody under the age of 45 has never had to deal with. Like, how do you deal with this nuclear risk? Um, I don't know if you have any ideas about that or um, ideas of what we should do to, to educate the next generation. Well, I think what you were saying is the first uh, imperative, and that is uh, making people aware both of the historical experience of uh, possessing these weapons of mass destruction and how essentially lucky uh, the world was that they were never uh, used in the period of the Cold War. Uh, I think the best book on uh, the early nuclear diplomacy was written by uh, uh, Martin Sherwood, Sherwin, uh, who shows by examining the interaction at the Cuban Missile Crisis that it was sheer luck that there was not a exchange of uh, uh, provocative uh, violence that would in all likelihood have led to the use of these weapons. And I would point out also that E.P. Thompson took the point that a country that prepares to wage nuclear war is itself uh, walking a very uh, treacherous uh, moral path to be to premise your own security on a announced readiness to kill tens of millions of people, innocent in every relevant way, as well as to contaminate the earth for generations to come, uh, is, is something that undermines any kind of cultural uh, moral fiber. Uh, and, and I think we've lived with this willingness to use these weapons and and to have a kind of nuclear oligarchy in the world why some countries should have them without any restrictions 
the five permanent members of the UN Security Council were the first five to acquire these nuclear capabilities. And the rest of the world suffers from a threat of intervention if they dare to acquire the weapon to uphold their security. For instance, Iran has a much better case to acquire nuclear weapons than the U.S. does, for instance. It's really jeopardized by stronger uh, threatening neighbors, uh, and yet it has been warned that if it should do this, it will be uh, subject to military attack. So that there is this nuclear apartheid uh, world system uh, that is uh, ingraining this kind of uh, unequal uh, n uh, character of uh, the world's structure in a way that I think is unacceptable. And therefore, a popular movement uh, and a movement from the global south, which uh, did result in the uh, passage of a treaty, the prohibition of nuclear prohibition of nuclear weapons, which was uh, came into force in 2021, I think it was, mm -hmm. and is a challenge to the nine nuclear weapon states, none of which are among the signatories to this uh, prohibition treaty. So we, we have an issue that is very fundamental. And I have always drawn a distinction between arms control, which aims to stabilize the nuclear environment and make it safer uh, against miscalculation and accident and exp excess expenditures and disarmament, which is getting rid eliminating the weapon. And the two things are not compatible. Uh, you can either work for stability or you can work for uh, a transformed world order based on denuclearization. Which seems today more urgent than ever. So thank you, Richard.